This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. You're listening to Garibaldi Red, a Nottingham Forest podcast brought to you by Nottinghamshire Live. Hello and welcome to Garibaldi Red as we're joined uh, joining the international break as ever by a former Forest player to look back on their career and life today. And delighted to be joined by a former Forest striker this week, Paul McGregor. Paul, are you well? I'm very well, thank you very much. Matt, how are you? Yes, not too bad, not too bad, thank you. Like you were saying before, if you've got your health and you're happy, then you're not too bad. And uh, yeah, all good on that front, so can't complain. Um, I mean, we'll get into your life and your career in a minute, but I think I saw you on the TV at the Liverpool game, unless I'm wrong, sat near Gary Bertels. Is that, were you there? That was me. That was me with my daughter, Cherry, yeah. I was in one of the lounges and I text Johnny, uh, Johnny Owen, what's the attire? So be it, having been in the game for a while, I know that the rote response to any ex-player is shirt and tie because people think you're representing the club even when so you, I get in there and everyone's in jeans and trackies and stuff. I was like, oh, God, and I'm stood in a shirt and tie. The thing was, I haven't really, I haven't really got a smart, smart coat, you know. So I went, I went, I went to the wardrobe and dug out like a, a vintage, an old, really, it's a really nice bell staff, like this brown thing. It's lovely. It was really expensive when I bought it about 20 years ago. And uh, I went round to a mate's house to drop my car off because I was going in with him and his son. And his missus went, oh, you look like a geography teacher. And I was like, oh, for crying out loud. I really do, don't I? And then, uh, <laughs> and then my phone started pinging like mad uh, at the game. And I didn't answer because I was I'm, I'm sat with my daughter. And half time I've had a look. And I've been on TV, haven't I? And I, there must have been six people telling me that I look like a geography teacher. Not, not physics, not a cool sports teacher. Everyone went geography. No, I was really in, uh, going off on a tangent. I remember I was in a stag doing Coventry I recently. Johnny. I was <laughs> I was in a stag doing Coventry recently. We'll, we'll come to football in a minute for people who listen who are listening wanting to hear about football. But I mean, I'm almost forty, and there are these young lads there who are about twenty. Pathetic scenes. And I said, they said, "What do you do?" And I told them what I did. And they said, "No, they, no, you don't." And they said, "You're a geography teacher." Like I, I said to you before, we don't swear, so I can't swear. But, yeah, it must be it must be the look. Are you growing into middle age gracefully? I mean, you're a music guy, you're a fashion guy. How, how do you find that transition into late 40s? What's a, what's a fashion guy? Well, I don't know. You have a style. I've seen the photos of you. You have a look, don't you? <laughs> well, I, like, I, like, I like clothes, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I love it. I just, um, to be honest, like I was saying earlier in, in regards to health, like I play football quite a lot. I run or walk in weighted vests every day. I've never really, well, I've, I've been fitter because, you know, you've got to be super fit to play football at the top level. But, you know, I'm, I'm really fit. I look after myself. I'm healthy. Life's good. I feel good, in, like, physically within my body. I can carry my weight and press up, sit-ups. I feel strong. I feel good. Uh, I very rarely get ill. So I'm, I'm good in that sense. Um, mentally enjoying it. Middle age. I think, I think, I genuinely think doing the Red Dogs podcast really put me in quite a healthy place with 
looking back and not nostalgia to some degree, but being able to look back at one's life and minor achievements um, with a sense of, oh, that was actually quite, it's quite cool that people think um, what we did back then is that side and a uh, few of my goals and that kind of thing was, you know, was great. And like speaking to people and people coming, like the feedback we get from people saying, oh, th that time, it gave me so much joy, even just thinking about, you know, even during the even during the uh, the pandemic, people saying, you know, the podcast had given me so much joy, just listening to back to the nineties and and those times they were fantastic. The last great forest side, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you just start to kind of relax into it and go, well, you know what? Not everyone's done that. It's a nice thing to have done. So uh, uh, yeah, I'm at an age now where I've kind of come through all that. Oh, I can't be harking on about this or harking on about that. If people enjoy listening to stuff or having a chat you know then then cool I'm, I'm i'm all for it don't mind it so going back to that liverpool game then um was it an interesting watch for you because you you're from that part of the world i assume your loyalties were they more forest or you wanting liverpool to win the game right i find this mental you're a forest fan right yes is there anything playing for another team or any anything else that would stop you supporting nottingham forest no, I mean, I, I've, if I played for one club my whole career, like Carragher was an Everton fan who played for Liverpool his whole career, I don't know where his loyalties lie. But uh, I mean, uh, no, I, I'd always want Forrest to win, I'll say. So, so I, was, I went for a pint with uh, uh, Fordy and the, and the chairman the other week. And obviously it was just after the draw. And they were going, so who are you going to be supporting? I was like, I'm a Liverpool fan. <laughs> I've supported Liverpool my whole life. I was born in Liverpool. My family are all Scousers. I support Liverpool. Now, that said, I wanted Liverpool to win. I did. But it's kind of a win-win or, or a no-win, whichever way you look at it, for me, because loads of my mates are Forest fans. You know, uh, I do stuff with the club, and I love Forest, genuinely love Nottingham Forest. Um, so if Forest had to beat Liverpool, then I'd have been supporting Forest of the Hill to go and win the FA Cup, absolutely, 100%. Um, and I'd have been pleased for the fans. I genuinely would have been pleased for the fans, pleased for the city, pleased for the team and the gaffer and the lads, the players, because they're in a phenomenal place right now and it's amazing to watch. Um, and he said, I'm saying I'm a Liverpool fan, but I support Plymouth Argyle, I support Nottingham Forest as well, but if, if anyone comes head-to-head, -head, Liverpool's my team in my heart, you know, so I'm never going to switch that ever. Um, and I would, I would hope anybody would think less of me if I did, by the way. Um, so, yes, wanting Liverpool to win, um, enjoyed the spectacle, loved the fact that the city ground is absolutely bouncing, yeah, just insane. Uh, you know, I've not seen it like that for years and years and years. So uh, that that's just absolutely wonderful to see. Um, and see Forest give a good account of themselves against what, who I believe is the best team in the world right now. Even if it was their third tier, they were fantastic. It was a great game and should have scored. Yeah. Should have scored. And it would have been a different, different game altogether. You know, the, 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 in inverted commas, the penalty from where we were sat, we were, I was like, that's a clear penalty. I was sat next to Woney and I was like, that, that's clearly a penalty, but he's got to go down proper because he, he kind yeah. of, didn't go down, but did. And then we came in at half time or full time, I think it was. And 
when I came down, it was deadly silent in the in the lounge. And the screens were all on. It was because everybody was watching. It was the replay of the penalty, so everyone was watching. And it was the close-up. And then literally the whole room went, it's not a penalty. <laughs> what age did you leave Liverpool then to come to Nottingham? The, the official story is work dried up in Liverpool for my parents. I was only about three. And yeah, you know, the docks were closing and all that kind of stuff. Work was drying up. Um, I was three, so it was what, seven, early 70s. So it was not a good time to, for, an employ- for employment in Liverpool. Mm. And my dad's cousin was here and he was like, there's loads of opportunity in Nottingham, loads of stuff happening. So we came. Um, the unofficial story is my, my old man had to get the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'll leave that there. Everyone knows that football is one of your passions and music is the other one. I suppose Liverpool, the city, and your parents coming from there. Um, Liverpool's synonymous with football and music. So what kind of house are you growing up in? Is it, is it a bit of both or are you straight into football? What's it like as a kid? My parents were, weren't really into music as such. My mum, the music I remember my mum playing was stuff like Patsy Cline, John Denver, Johnny Mathis, some Beatles, Trogs. We had, we had those records knocking about. My dad's never listened to a record in his life. Uh, the pair of them used to go and see the Beatles at the cavern. And it was, it's kind of like the stories you hear about people in Manchester in the 80s who um, would, would like, oh, you saw Joy Division? And they were like, oh, my God. They were on in the, the same boozers every week. They were so boring. I saw Joy Division <laughs> five times. They were that bored of seeing the Beatles. My mum switched their allegiances, even as a Scouse girl, to the Stones. So she was more of a Stones fan. Um, but I grew up loving the Beatles. Uh, football was around in the family. My dad was, my dad's an Evertonian, so my dad's a toffee. His dad was a toffee. His uncle used to make it, used to get him tickets for the game, uh, at good games at Goodison. But he was a runner, so he used to, he was a cross country runner, so he used to make my dad run uh, eight miles to Goodison to the match and eight miles home. Um, so, Growing up, mid to late 70s, early 80s, um, I grew up both in Bootle and in Chilwell uh, in in Nottingham, uh, going up to any holiday we had. It'd be spent in Bootle with family and friends up there. And so I grew up kind of up until the age of about 10, 11, 12. Um, So at that time, Liverpool were just a winning machine. And all my family up there were Reds. So uh, I supported Liverpool instead of Everton. And to my, to my dad's credit, he never forced it upon me. He bought me an Everton shirt once, which I loved. It was a great one with, all, with the, um, the Umbro diamond uh, stripe down the sleeve. Um, yeah, I, was, I loved it. It was great. I played in that for about a season. Then my uncle bought me a, a Liverpool shirt with Barnes on the back and that was it. What about getting into Forest then? What what age were you um, scouted and how did it go in the early days there? I came through the, the ranks really at, at the earliest level. Um, I was a little bit of a late bloomer because I, I stuck to teams that I wasn't really a mercenary as a player, as a, as a young lad. And my dad just wanted me to enjoy my football. So I played for all whites. And at that level, 
Cliff Norwhites at that at that level, they we finished fourth or fifth in the league. There was a team called Pheasant Colts that were winning everything. The same on Sunday, I played for San Diego Town, but there was a team called Little Over Dazzlers. This was in the Derby League that were winning everything. And if you wanted to get scouted, you had to be at the top sides. So I had friends and players who I was playing against who I felt I was as good as, if not better than. Um, you know, oh, so-and-so has just gone off to uh, train with Manchester United. So-and-so has just gone for a trial at Tottenham. So-and-so has just gone for a trial at Forest or whoever. So at the age of 13, 14, me and my dad just looked at him and went, right, we've got to go and sign for these big clubs, big clubs, but we've got to go and sign for these top teams. And then from that moment on, you, you know, there's only a finite amount of uh, scouts, aren't there? You know, and they're going to go and watch the top, the top teams at youth level, uh, particularly back then. You know, it wasn't as well scouted as it is now. Nothing goes under the radar now. Um, so, so yeah, I went to went to. I was going to Forest on trial, and then everyone started knocking. Really, so Everton, Sheffield Wednesday, Tottenham. So, oh, clubs started looking, started knocking. I signed for Forest because I started scoring. I was a goal scorer as a centre forward. So I started scoring. I started. I went from being top scorer to scoring a lot of goals, like obscene amount of goals, because I kicked onto that next level. Well, if he's scoring ninety a season, I want to be scoring hundred and thirty. Mm. Um, I just had that competitive streak in me, um, and and I did that, and I was achieving that. So, one rainy afternoon, it was morning actually. Uh, up at Gresham, I'd been playing with Forest Boys on the Sunday. Was it? It was Mick Rayner, I think. Just slapped a uh, a contract in front of us. We'd been promised a dinner with Brian Clough and taken out wine and dined and all that, which all the out of town lads did, but the the local lads kind of <laughs> got a bit of a bum deal. So I signed for Forest schoolboy forms at fourteen on the back of my dad's Mark II Cortina in the razzing down rain. <laughs> and that was that. There were scouts in the car park that wanted to talk to me and talk to my dad, just sat watching us. But I signed, I signed my life away <laughs> in front of scouts from other clubs. And yeah, so uh, that's, how, that's how that started. And then, unfortunately, the thing I look back at that I, I do genuinely regret is what do you do if you're a 14-year-old kid not massively bothered about school? Um, I used to enjoy reading. And I, used to, I was quite creative, but not that fussed about any of, the, any of the other stuff. I just didn't pay any attention from that moment on. I had no doubt in my mind that I was going to be a professional footballer and that was it, which is stupid. Because mm. so many young lads have no doubts in their minds that they're going to be professional footballers. Um, but um, the naivety of youth paid off <laughs> in, uh, in my case. Um, yeah, and so left, left school with three GCSEs above C, the rest were Ds, didn't try, didn't try at all, didn't. I, I, genu I actually remember the summer of revision just being sat there and my mum going, don't worry, don't worry, you'll be all right. <laughs> I remember it being really warm, everybody was revising and I was just in the street, in the court, in Chilwell having a kickabout. Had my last summer holidays with the warning that I need to turn up fit. Had a few runs and then going from 
Mr. Maltby being my head teacher to Brian Clough being my manager. I'd better ask you about Clough then. I mean, I don't know, this is the latter days of Clough and it's not the best years of Clough, everyone would admit, but what was your experience of him then? Bittersweet, up and down, schizophrenic. Um, I have some, like, you know, some really dark things, but really genuinely beautiful light things as well. Um, memories, moments. Um, for example, I was his, he loved a goal scorer, right? So, cause he was a goal scorer himself. So if I managed to get a couple of goals in the youth team, which I invariably did or a hat trick or, or whatever, he'd be, he'd be like Blondie down the corridor, like, no training for you today. Run me a bath. So I'd have to run him a bath. I'm like, run yourself one, son. We're going to have a chat. <laughs> so great memories of kind of like surreal moments. But, you know, Brian Clough sat invariably in, a, in an ice bath, a cold bath for reasons. And me in a nice red hot bath, Radox bath, the lads training. Just the injured lads milling around, and he's, and he's sat there going, "How are you, mum and dad? How are you doing? Have you got a, you got a girl? Are you going steady?" Yeah. Just lovely memories of sitting having a chat for twenty minutes, and um, I remember us doing. We won the league and cup double as a youth team. Did really well in the FA Youth Cup as well. Then got to the semis. He made us go out. I think I think if my memory serves me well, it was against Sunderland towards the end of the season. Beautiful sunny day, and he made us do do a, a lap with the trophies of the city ground and uh Sunderland fan gave us a round of applause all the Forest fans were brilliant as usual and uh he walked us into the center circle and he came and gave every single one of us a big hug and a big kiss and he gave proper had tears in his eyes you know so proud of us mm. so proud of us of his like his young team his young men um and yeah, you know, some some darker times that, you know, I, I don't particularly think need needs to we don't need to go into too deeply, but you know, I'd 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 be the one that would go and fix his his drinks in the morning because he'd ask me to and I'd have to go in and um fix him a you know a, a drink first thing in the morning and look after make sure he's in the sauna all right and uh make sure, you know. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it, it was, it, it, it was a bit dark at times. I remember he spoke to my dad in a particular way at a youth team game <laughs> for no reason whatsoever, just went into a tirade, a, a drunken tirade at my dad and my dad just wanted to murder, like absolutely murder him. And again, actually, funnily enough, yesterday in the pub, my dad mentioned that and he was just like, I don't know how I didn't hit him. Don't know how I didn't do it. It was, it was only because of your career. For me, you know, he was he was genuinely a genius. I don't think that's in in dispute in, in any way. And to have been around him and around the club at that time um, is is a is a real uh, a real honour. Um, and again, you know, looking back on these things is something you go when 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 you actually start saying it out loud at a certain age that. You played under Brian Clough and you were you worked under Brian Clough. It's insane. It's it's crazy. It's such an amazing thing to have done. 
Um, and I remember more than anything, more than any of the light moments or dark moments, I remember how it felt to be part of the club at that time. The pride of honour, the pride, you know, the badge that you wore everywhere you went as a, as a Nottingham Forest player. I remember that feeling more than anything else. Um, I think that stays with me. Um, but he was, he was just, just being around that daily was, was, was special. Um, for better or worse, really. When he leaves, obviously the club are relegated. Yeah. Oh, my math isn't great. I'm, I'm trying to work out your age here. You're kind of at the age where you might be breaking into the first team. Do you see that as an opportunity? And then Stan Collymore comes in and is it a frustrating time for you trying to make your way from being a prolific goal scorer in the reserves to, to being a first team player under Frank Clark? Well, it was scary time. It was all anybody knew. If you remember, there were people crying in the streets. There's that, mm. that, that amazing footage of fans, you know, crying, telling him not to go and stuff. And he's got tears in his eyes. You know, it was... It was Funnily enough, by the way, you know his final interview? Yes, was doing the rounds on Twitter, yeah. That's the one, yeah. So I was in that room with him. All right. So I, was, I was just off camera. Mm. So as, as his kind of go-to youth team player, I was just off camera in that room watching that live. So I've got very clear memories of that. Um, so I remember, I remember that day vividly. Uh, and by the way, how many, how many managers... Could you think of a single manager in the modern era who would get relegated and get a reception like that at the end of the game? Yeah. You know, well, they were on the pitch yeah. chanting his name. Just, mm. I mean, amazing. Absolutely amazing. That said, in terms of my personal career, I didn't know what was next. I'd, I'd, he'd given me um, my, uh, my debut in the first team five minutes at the baseball ground. It's about 10 minutes, actually. Weirdly enough, it's not documented anywhere, but um, yeah, I played for the first team for nine, it was about nine or 10 minutes at the baseball ground and uh, I managed to get a shot off. So Clough actually did give me my debut and then went and no one knew what was really coming. I mean, I'd scored a load of, I'd scored 49 goals in 51 games in the youth team, got into the, res was doing all right in the reserves, but had a bit of a stagnant first season. There's, there's a little bit of a transition uh, because they bought Stan. Um, was I going to be a centre-forward? I mean, I was a goal scorer as a centre-forward my whole life. Or because I was fast, could I be converted to, as a winger? So I went through this sort of transitional period and I turned my ankle a couple of times. So I had a bit of a frustrating first season in the, in the, in the reserves. But then I had a, I had a good pre-season and they just said, listen, right wing from now on off you go go and so I, I had had a cracking first half of that that second season in reserves where I, every time I got the ball I was I, I mean I can remember that feeling as well just I just felt invincible I didn't think anyone could catch me I didn't I, any left back anywhere ever I just thought I can rinse you no problem and I just the confidence was insane it's probably the most confident I've ever been even even more than when I was at Plymouth scoring for fun, but I, yeah, I remember that confidence. It scares me now, the amount of confidence I had as a young lad. And that's when I started breaking into the first team squad, getting taken everywhere and being in and around the first team and getting moved up to the first team dressing room, which was a, a really big step because you have to, you know, some big characters in that dressing room, some really big characters in that dressing room, Stan, Piercy, Chet, Woney, 
Stoney, Coops, Desi, Jet, you know, some big names in there. Um, and yeah, you've got to, you can't be a wallflower in there. You've got to, you've got to come in with a bit of, with a bit of oomph. Mm. So that was, that was quite something, but I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed that dressing room. It was, it was great. So becoming part of all of that was a load of fun and kind of tying the music thing. That's, I mean, I'd been in a band since school as well. I was in, I was in a school band. The, the, the school band was the thing that kind of everyone still remembers, funnily enough, uh, Merck. But they were my school band. We were just kicking about. Um, the, the fact that I started breaking into the first team whilst in my school band was, you know, a little detrimental to, to me in terms of music because we weren't ready and we were getting offered some decent gigs and, you know, we were in the middle pages of the, the bizarre era section of the sun and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's just just because of uh, the, what I was doing with, with, with the first team. But uh, so that that does, that, does that hurt your first team thing? Because that creates a perception around you, rightly or wrongly, that you, you're not focused? But, you know, I, I had this conversation with Frank Clark when he was on the Red Dogs podcast. Like, I, I got painted... Um, enti- like, it couldn't have been more wrong. Like, the majority of the younger lads were going to the Black Orchid, Ritz's, at, any, at the drop of a hat, at any opportunity... And I was rehearsing with my band. We might have one or two beers, but that was it. I'd be rehearsing, just making music, writing music, uh, hanging out with the band. And everyone just assumed I had the life of Liam Gallagher. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and uh, it was just, it couldn't have been further from the truth. People say, you know, I remember Frank Clark saying afterwards, after our podcast, that um, he was like, you know, you you were torn, weren't you? I was like, no. I wasn't. I made music. I was in a band. That would have been fun to be in a band as well. But I wanted to be a professional footballer for Nottingham Forest. But nothing turned my head. Mm. It really didn't. Genuinely didn't. It was a hell of a time, you know. And like coming into the first team dressing room, and then bringing all that music thing with me. Um, my personal manager at the time was a guy called Andy Copping that used to run Rock City and book bands for Rock City. So I was getting the lads in everywhere, anywhere we needed to go, we'd get in. And then we, we just had this great little gig crew going to everything. Mm. Um, uh, we all went to Main Road together. We got slapped by Man United. I think it was 5-1 at Old Trafford. And it was the night of Main Road, of Oasis at Main Road. Mm. And Clark said, you're not going. We're all up. <laughs> Right. Anyway, he let us go in the end because I think Piercy had a word with him. But yeah, V92, Noel Gallagher um, with Paul Weller and we all went there and we'd go down to see the sheds in London and uh, yeah, just we went, we went, we were gigging quite a lot. We were going around everywhere really going to see bands. So the dressing room became really tight around it. And Euro 96 as well with Piercy and his exploits there. It was an amazing time to be in that dressing room. Mm. Um, obviously being in a band and being in inverted commas, the Britpop footballer, uh, whilst Piercy's doing that and then we're going to gigs everywhere. Um, it was crazy. You know, I remember when we went to, actually when we went to V92, the enemy had posters up, you know, those big billowing freestanding sort of billboards on poles like flags sort of thing is this the coolest footballer in britain with a picture of <laughs> a picture of me with like these big shades on i remember doing the photo shoot 
thinking I was Liam Gallagher or Ian Brown or something. And we got we got out, we were actually in a limo. God, this sounds disgusting. So we got out of the limo, yeah, and all these posters of me were everywhere. It was it was just balmy. Absolutely balmy. But great fun. I mean, mm-hmm. such good fun. Did it tarnish my name as a footballer, probably? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, Ron Atkinson, when he came on on the scene, unfortunately, he'd done a piece in, I think it was, I think it was Match magazine about about two months before he came to Forest where he'd listed the top five young centre-forwards in the country, and I was one of them, with Robbie Fowler, Noel Whelan, someone else, someone else. Heskey might have been in it, not sure. Um, so I was thinking, oh, when Ron Axel was, oh, he's going to play me, like he's going he's to throw me, this is going to be great. But he's walked on the training ground. Everyone's there, first team squad, everybody, youth team. And the first words out of his mouth, with everybody there, were, um, right, and he rubbed his hands together, let's see what we've got here then. Because then it pointed at me and went, because I don't want any rock stars in my team. <laughs> and then, and honestly, the blood drained out of me. I was just like, mm. oh, my God. Like, what are you on about? And that was that. Mm. Um, I, knew, I knew my time was up at Forest at that, at that moment. Dreadful man, boy. Dreadful man. How do you reflect on your Forest career overall then? Because obviously, you know, there's the famous goal against Leon, and then you score against Man United. When, you, when I hear you talking about the goals you scored in the reserves and as a kid and how prolific you were, does it? do you think, you know, a stroke of luck here, a different manager there, different moments, you might have been, not Stan Collymore, but you might have been, you know, the guy who scores 50 goals for the club, not three. A little bit of a sliding doors moment. Yeah, I do. Might sound e- egotistical, but um, I think if I'd have been thrown in as a number nine and given a run of 10 games, I'd have scored. Because that's, I didn't know anything else. I learned how to play on the right wing and I could be effective on the right wing because I was fast. But I was a goal scorer. I'd scored, I'd broken records at every age scoring goals. Forrest had paid money for centre forwards. So there was a, I had a glass ceiling, unfortunately, at Nottingham Forest. It was there, it was, it was very real. Um, you could argue that if I'd continued to score goals in the reserves, um, I'd have just been thrown in anyway, but I did. Um, when I got thrown on, I did well and scored goals. And you know, I'm not just that's not just me. You can ask most Forest fans who were around at that time, remember, still remember me as being this exciting young thing that when came on, lifted the place and was exciting and was always a goal threat. Um, so yeah, part of me thinks if I'd have been at Man United with the class class of 92, which I was class of 92, I might have been the centre forward there. Um, but it wasn't to be, you know, and I'm not not precious about it. Um, I completely get that they bought Brian Roy, they bought Stan Collymore. Um, and I fully respect if Frank Clark didn't feel the way that I did. You know, that's his prerogative. It's absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. I personally know I would have scored goals at Nottingham Forest if I'd have been if I'd have been thrown in as a, as a number nine or a number 10, off you go. You've got 10 games, 20 games. You're going to be first name on a team sheet. Off you go, go and score goals. That's your job. I'd have scored goals. You had a better career than 99.9% of kids who, you know, get somewhere near it. You did well at Plymouth and then um, I think you finished at Northampton. What are the latter years of your career like? Is it is the adrenaline rush not the same, I guess, of running out of the city yeah, ground as... Not when you're running out of six fields, no. Hellhole. Awful place. 
soulless pit Sixfields is. Matt Ford said, he said, your career at Forest was like a Christmas number one. So there are plenty of players who played for Forest who played 100 games, 150 games, 200 games possibly, that people don't remember like they remember me because mm. they remember the Christmas number one. I kind of got in there, blasted it, and then, and then was gone. Um, I didn't have to do the hard slog. I didn't, I didn't put in six middling albums. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wrote Do They Know It's Christmas and then buggered off, essentially. Then went to Preston on loan under David Moyes, which was an amazing experience, really. He, took, he bought me in his cover, which was a bit upsetting because it was a, a really good club. He was a great manager. They had some great players, Johnny Macken, Sean Gregan. I mean, they had some cracking players. And they went up, um, but he said, listen, there's no intention of, of giving you a contract. You hear his cover. He said, but I'll tell you what, he said, I'll work with you one-on-one for as long as you're here, for as long as you want. So I spent those three months on the bench playing the reserves now and again. He was brilliant with me. He didn't slog me in the reserves. Um, and I had one-to-one sessions with David Moyes for three months, good two and a half months which I'll be forever grateful for. Maybe he didn't have to do that, you know. I wasn't going to be playing for him the season after, but he just gave his time to coach a young lad who he liked, which was I thought was brilliant of him. And he told me up front, flat out, we won't be signing you, but I'll do this for you and I'll do that for you, I'll look after you. So, And that's all you want in any job, right? A bit of honesty. The amount of managers I had, particularly when I went to Northampton, were just not good people. Um, and would lie um, and in particularly one moment where I was having a bit of a, a bit of a rough time of it I was back at my mum and dad's house I was with my just I was not long with my just started going out with uh, who ended up being my wife who I'm still with um, we're living out of bin bags in mum and dad's house and uh, it's not going great in the first team in Northampton and I remember being sat on the end of the bed most days going into training, just sat there, like not, not crying or feeling depressed or upset, no, no real feelings, but like tears streaming, just going, I don't want to go. I just don't want to be there. There's nothing exciting about being at that club. Didn't enjoy it. The money was good. That was it. That was it. I'd have still been at Plymouth going... I should have stayed at Plymouth, to be fair, because they went up two years on the bounce when Paul Stobart came in and I'd have been a Plymouth legend there, um, like those boys rightly all rightly are. Um, but, but yeah, so I remember sitting down. I won't mention his name because I think it's dreadful of him, but he'll know who it is. Um, and I went in to see him. I said, Gaffer, I'm, I'm struggling. I, I, I don't even want to be a footballer anymore. Like My love for this, this club has taken my love of this game and killed it, trodden all over it. I don't want to play in Northampton Town's reserves. It's not why I became a footballer. My first boss was Brian Clough. My second one was Frank Clark. I played in the Premier League, played in Europe. I get that you have to do your time. Sometimes you have to come away, come step away and come back. I've done that at Plymouth. I am not playing for Northampton Town reserves. I am I'm kind of done. I think I'm done. By the time I left his office, it was a Friday. And on Fridays, we had to walk through the club shop, sign the balls, sign the shirts, 
and then go back into the dressing room for the final meeting. By the time I'd signed the shirts and got back to the dressing room, I was a laughing stock of the dressing oh. room because yeah. I'd gone because I'd gone to the gaffer and told him that I was struggling. And he he'd just gone down to the dressing room and told the senior players that um, exactly what I just said. The only time in my life I'd ever faked an injury. And that's not me. You ask anybody, that is not me. I am not that person. Honest to a fault, stand up, you know, just, I was just like, you are not, but I won't have my pants pulled down, just not having it. Trying to play in the reserves on a Wednesday afternoon, fi fixing friendlies just so I'd have to play in them to try and get me out of the clubs I was on decent wage. Mm. Car's broken down, mate. What? Car's broken down. No, it hasn't. You're in your bedroom. Yeah, car's broken down. I'm not coming in. I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't let anyone beat me. The, the, I wouldn't give them the satisfaction. I remember sitting with my dad in the Victory Club in Beeston, the working men's club there, uh, and saying to him, listen, it's done. I'm, I've had enough. I, I don't want to play. I don't want to be a footballer anymore. And he was, he was heartbroken because it was his dream. It was his dream for me. But he'd seen how bad it had become, really, and even when you were playing first team for Northampton, like playing at six fields on a Tuesday night in front of 3,000 whining, moaning Midlanders. <sighs> not, I couldn't care less. Not interested in doing that at all. And my dad was brilliant. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, and this is the truth. We, our name, my band's name, Ulterior, had just been put on the front cover of the NME. And I'd said, well, listen, I'm not 18, I'm 28, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world. I'm going to go and do that. And that's, that's what I did. Went and hit, didn't watch a football match, kick a football for five years, went and hit London, went on that scene, toured Europe, Japan, South Africa, released two albums, toured with some of the, some legendary bands, played some brilliant shows, created memories and had it. Yeah. Had a, second career doing that absolutely loved it is there a similarity between a football crowd and a music crowd in terms of i don't know a common purpose of being there together is there is one better than the other do you think you've got more control over what happens being a front man as well standing in front of the crowd and looking in people's eyes and feeling that not control in a um in a despot sense you know ju just in a sense that Every, you're a conduit, everything's coming through you out into the room, you know, like the band, the, the power, the energy of the band's coming through you and out into the room and you're looking at the crowd and you can, you've got the whites of their eyes and they're, they're either going or they're just stood and you have, the, you have real control over that. The reason why big groups of people fill stadiums or big groups of people fill concert halls, um, that connection, that, that magic that happens when... There's a, there's a sporting event or a musical event and there's a back and forth, this energy that happens between the players and the crowd or the band and the crowd. When those two things... I mean, I love bands that like play at crowds, like the Jesus and Mary Chain or Suicide or... Uh, you know, I, I, love, I love that energy. I, I do love that. But then I also... There's, it, it's not the same... That's a, it's not the same as when... There's a, a band and a crowd doing this, and the crowd are all singing the the words back, and that's something that's that's communal. 
Um, so both those things happen at football and at uh, and within a gig environment, and they're magical. They're magical in different ways, um, but you're more in control of it as a frontman, um, and it's more visceral. It's more you, you. It's more tangible as a frontman. Um, you know, you can almost taste it. But you know, that's saying that said, I've never played. I've never played music in front of forty-five thousand people, fifty thousand people. You know, I played Anfield, you know, Old Trafford, and Highbury. These places, um, White Hart Lane. You know, I've, I've played at all the Premier League clubs. Playing in front of crowds like that is, is um, yeah, is 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 something else. So, what's your relationship like with football then? Because it, obviously, it's given you and anyone who plays a lot. But it sounds like it took a lot out of you and a lot away from you in a lot of senses. Uh, how do you reflect on that kind of bond you have with football? Um, well, I came, like I say, I came away from it. Didn't want to touch it ever again. Wasn't interested. Missed the Saturdays. Missed the playing. Missed the crowds. That magic that we spoke of. I missed that. Um, didn't miss training. Didn't miss the pre-seasons. Didn't miss the, in inverted commas, banter. There's lots of it I didn't miss. Didn't miss the politic of it. Yeah, I came away from it entirely not being forced. So I didn't even, didn't, I rarely even watched Liverpool either. I just, I was so into making music and being on that, just doing a band at 200 mile an hour properly. I didn't even look back. And then... A friend of mine who I grew up with, who's, who still lives really close to my mum and dad, said, listen, I've just, I've just formed a team. It was a local team in Chilwell. They were called Chilwell Vipers on, and they played on the wreck in Chilwell. Um, the park I grew up playing football on. He said, do you want, would you come down and do some sessions? I was like, oh, mate, like, I'm not a coach. I don't enjoy it. I don't like coaching. He was like, for me, would you just come down? So I was like, Ugh. okay. So I went down. Uh, I don't know if you know Chilwell, but Chilwell's split by the wreck, by the park. On one side, there's Inham Nook. On the, on the other side, it's a little bit nicer. It's, it's still council houses and courts, but mm. Inham Nook is where all the smack is and it's naughty. And if you're going to get robbed, it's from someone from Inham Nook. Um, so we'd be on the park. Uh, and you got all the nook lads shouting pedo over at me and my, my, the guy who I'm doing the team with. And it's, it's, it's hilarious. And anyway, I fell in love with this group of kids. I just fell in love with their personalities. I was coming down every week. Before I knew it, I had three years managing just this group of lads. And what was wonderful was literally from scratch, from zero, those kids picked me back up again mm. and gave me, gave me my love of football back. And Lee, uh, Lee Bartle, he's now a personal trainer, a, a wonderful one, by the way, a brilliant one. Um, so I'm giving Lee a little punt there. He, um, I gave him my first Forest shirt at the, at the Christmas do, the end of season do, the trophy do. Um, and he was uh, Simon, Simon Coleman, the guy, my, my mate, that's his son. And it was just symbolic, really, of just they gave, they gave me my love of football back, that team and those kids, that group of kids. And I still see them about now. 
and they always stop and say, oh, you know, they've got they've got kids of their own now, and uh, and it's great. But um, I remember those days very very fondly. And then from there, start playing five side again. Start watching matches, going down forest with my friends now and again, and it all just slowly came back organically, and um, it was unforced. So my love for football is stronger than ever. I'm an absolute lunatic watching football or playing it. Um, you ask any of the lads I play with on a Tuesday night, I'm, I'm a desperate winner, screaming and shouting. Um, I'm tearing up and down the pitch past 18, 19 year olds running past the <laughs> lunatic. I only want to win. I love it. You know, I love it. And the, like I say, you know, again, with, with, with the podcast being able, enabling me to sort of look back on a career, I feel back to where I, I should be now with my relationship with it. Mm. Uh, um, and yeah, I, I've got a really good relationship with football now. Um, and I love it. And every time I play, be it, be it eight aside on a Tuesday night or 11 aside, I play for, uh, sometimes play for Nottingham uh, Seek uh, Lions, uh, Vets team. Great bunch of lads. Uh, sometimes play for them on a Sunday. So it just feels like an utter privilege to be nearing 50 and to still be this fit and being able to do 90 minutes or do or, or play on a Tuesday regularly. Because, you know, at our age, my age, sorry, you're only ever a snapped Achilles or an ACL away from a career ending or mm. uh, or never being able to play again. Are you going about retiring early? I mean, you, or do you worry about what football would have done to you if you carried on playing till you were 35 and the path? If you carried on down that Northampton path, would it have been too bleak for you? I got offered the chance to go and talk to Hull. And I thought, why do I want to go and move to Hull? Play for Hull. That's frying pan fire. Nothing against Hull, but God almighty, like, like I couldn't be less interested. I, I genuinely would have much rather gone and worked in a shop, gone and worked for Paul Smith in a shop all day long with, with and then gone to Forest. I, I would have rather have done that. Northampton doubled my wages from Plymouth. to They doubled my wages overnight. It meant nothing. That having that money meant nothing. I had a Range Rover and stuff, and it just meant nothing. It's nice and that, but, you know, like, so what? We sat on the end of the bed, not wanting to go to work. That, that's not a place to be for anybody. Um, and I would urge anybody to change that about their lives, if that's ever the situation. You can't live like that. I just a whole, nah, nah, mate, not doing it. The only regret, I possibly have as Paul Sturrock sat me down when I was at Plymouth and you know my nickname at Plymouth was McGod they loved me down there and I love them the fans the place I adore the club I adore the city the people oh wonderful place I, I could even live there it's brilliant um still got loads of good great friends down there um Paul Sturrock came in um we got on really well he was funny we had a good crack and he was like, listen, we've not got any money, but we'll have money next year. Uh, I want to build a team around you. Um, but I can only offer you five grand a year more to stay. And because I've scored goals, you know, there were clubs sniffing. And I was like, gaffer, like the... My girlfriend's left me, which she did at the time. 
went moved to London because she was on that scene. So she moved out to London. So I was rattling around in this massive house in Plymouth. Before it was before the boom actually in Plymouth. So I had a I had a nine story house with a roof garden. Like, wow. it, was, it, was, it was insane. I bought it for like 110 grand. Sold it for 180, thinking I'd done a job. Two years later, it was on the market for 650. Heartbroken. Anyway, Paul Sturrock said, you know, I want to build a team around you, but we can only offer five. I was like, mate, they've offered to double my wages near a home, like 45 minutes from my house, my mum and dad's house. I've got to go. And he's like, you'll regret it. Mm-hmm. And I did. And I don't, I don't have regrets in any sense, really, because my life's led where it's led and everything's, everything's groovy. But he's, uh, they went up that year. And then went up again the year after that. And all the players that I was playing with are absolute utter club legends now. Uh, Paul Watt and David Frio, who was at Forest as well, who's a wonderful footballer. Um, um, so, yeah. <sighs> Should have stayed there, really, but I don't... Plymouth's the sort of place you don't really get out of as much as I love it. It's miles away from anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like, you get to Bristol and you're like, oh, are we nearly there? Yeah, no, another three hours. It's really, it just keeps going down and going down another windier road and an even more windy road and then Plymouth pops out. Foot In a footballing sense, should have stayed at Plymouth. Um, I wish Frank Clark hadn't have left. I think life would have been a lot different if Frank Clark hadn't have left. Shouldn't have left Plymouth. Certainly should have gone, shouldn't have gone to Northampton Town, but if Northampton Town hadn't have been such a horror show, then I wouldn't have had the musical career I went on to have with my brother and my two best mates that was just indescribable, just playing shows all over Europe all the time, being in rec- recording studios. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't change that for the world. So your path's your path, isn't it? Yeah, so just to finish, I mean, what... Where does the where are you on the path now? Where's life? Find you mentioned you've got a daughter. You're obviously still involved in music. What else are you up to as well as the podcast? We were we were on tour for the second time in Japan, and my daughter had just been born. And I just thought I can't I can't I can't do this. I'm I, if I'm not coming home with five grand in my pocket after or two a grand in my pocket um, after being away for a week then I'm not doing it. If it's not commercially viable, I'm not bringing money into the house. I am not going on a jolly up with my mates. When I've got a daughter, I'm just, she changed everything. I'm not doing that anymore. And the band, you know, it wiped its own backside, really. It, it, it you know, we didn't have to, we got to the point where we weren't spending money. We get put up, we get given, uh, we, you know, everywhere was paid for, everything was paid for, but we weren't coming back with cash in our pockets. So, I came back and we all decided to sort of put it to the side and continue writing until we were ready to do something else with, with the band, with, with Ulterior. I drove a van and I started businesses. And to answer your question, currently I've got my own business, helped to build academies, um, do some upskilling, and I've got another business that does that creates brands for TikTok and YouTube stars. I've got those, they're, they're my jobs, um, but I'm also lucky enough to have 
to be of an age where I have a like we have a studio in Long Eaton at the uh, the old school. It's beautiful, big grade two listed building. So two bands kind of got to know each other just from having a drink with a mate who's a mate of, of a mate. And before you know it, we've got a studio where eight lads pay in £45 a month each. And we've got a commercial standard studio, two minutes walk from all of our houses. Mm. Um, and uh, we go in there every week. I'm in there once or twice a week. I've learned the sax. <laughs> well, I've learned the sax. I sound like I'm... Uh, John Coltrane or something. I'm learning the sax. I'm at grade four currently. Yeah, we've got all Ulterior's kit in there. This other band's kit in there. We've got live drums, electronic drums, loads of brass, double bass, pianos, electric and real. All the guitars and amps you could want. We've built a we've built a room within a room. Uh, recording vocal booth. So it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So we've got I've got an album that's just been mastered. Um, that's going to be out soon with a different group of lads, actually. Um, weird little thing it is, sort of noise, jazz, <laughs> a little bit. Can't imagine, I mean, it, we started it about 10 years ago, so I don't know if you like Nick Cave's recent output, Ghost Teen and uh, Skeleton Tree. We kind of predated that sort of sound. It was just drone synths and a, a piano just nice well-written songs double bass bit of saxophone that's kind of cool um weird little thing so i've got that that's gonna that's gonna come out i've written another ulterior album so we're currently in the middle of, middle of demo in that with aid fenton who's gary newman's producer um who's a boris fan and from Nottingham, so I've known Aid for years, a brilliant producer. And also something something very weird happened during lockdown. I sort of retreated into, musically, I sort of retreated into melody and back to sort of my roots with, I think it was a fear thing. I, I, all the time, we had all the time, remember that really hot summer, the first lockdown? It was yeah. me, my wife and my daughter going for walks and I just really reverted into like big star, and the Beatles and Northern Soul and some of the 90s indie stuff, you know, like just massive, big guitar melody. And uh, I was just chatting to one of the lads from the other band. I was like, I suppose you like, you like all that sort of stuff. And he was like, mate, I grew up on all that. So during lockdown, remotely, we just, we wrote like 50, 60 songs. <laughs> um, and they're all just, the most joyful, uplifting, wonderful, big, enormous indie bangers you could imagine. So we're recording them. That's what I'm doing musically. So I'm, I'm, my brain's just permanently on fire. If it's not work, like I work from home, so I'm, I'm, my brain bounces in between a Zoom call to picking up a guitar, to writing three or four emails, to then going to pick my daughter up, to then coming back to finishing off some lyrics, to then... Yeah, another Zoom call, you know, to uh, to get, you know, some learners enrolled and stuff. So that's how I live. That's what I do. Last question to bring you back to football before we finish, because I know we're keep, I'm keeping you a long time here. You mentioned earlier about what Matt said about the Christmas number one analogy. I guess there's the players from that time, like 
trying to think, Steve Gwynn and Bobby Howe and Lee Glover or people who played a lot of games before us, probably more than you, but you probably get people coming up to you in the street a lot more than they do ask you about Leon and those kind of moments. Would you prefer it that way or would you have preferred to play more games for Forest and had that long longevity that that um, escaped you a little bit in the end? Which, which way around would you have it? The professional in me, and there is one in me, the professional in me says I would much, much prefer to have had 200 appearances for Nottingham Forest because, like I said earlier, I think I'd have scored goals. I do. But the punk in me goes... No, mate, I was the pistols. I got in and out. <laughs> I kicked off and I left and that was it. And so, you know, you've got to be happy with what you've got, haven't you? I I played for Nottingham Forest in that brilliant period and I'll take that. That's not something everybody gets to say. It seems that I'm still fairly well thought of um, with Forest fans and that's all you can ask for. I was with my daughter at the city ground for the Liverpool game the other day and three separate occasions. I've got lads, groups of lads coming up to me, shaking my hand, saying my daughter's like, wow, that's that's so cool. And it is, it is really cool. It's lovely. Um, and I'll take that all day long. And I'm never, I'd never complain about my career, never complain about Frank Clark not throwing me in or not getting this amount. Um, I've got four goals for Nottingham Forest. You're forgetting my West Ham one, my first one. <laughs> so, I got four goals for him. And great. One was... One was a scissor kick, one was in Europe, and one was against Man United. Happy as Larry. Brilliant. Um, we'll leave it there. I hope everyone who listened along to this enjoyed it, and we'll be back. Uh, this is coming out on Mondays. You listen, so we'll hopefully be back later in the week with Lee Wood, and then with normal service resumes. Uh, yes, absolutely. Normal service resumes with Forrest v Blackpool review, and then hopefully we'll be talking about promotion in a few months. Um, Paul, thank you very much. Hope that was okay for you. Loved it, mate. Thank you for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it, and uh, good luck. Genuinely good luck to Forrest for the rest of the season. Um, I Everything crossed. Um, I genuinely think they'll, at the very least, get playoffs. And if they do get playoffs, I think they've got the spirit and the momentum to, to go up. I really do. I've got a really good feeling about it. Thank you for listening to Garibaldi Red, a Nottingham Forest podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please let us know. We love hearing your feedback. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.